welcome to the Riverside Church Podcast. Riverside Church is a community of believers striving side-by-side for the gospel in the greater New Orleans area. For more information about Riverside Church, go to riversidelife.org. Bibles, um, uh, two chapters this morning, Acts 25 and 26. Obviously, I did not read all of that to you this morning, um, just a portion of that, Saul's conversion as he recounts that again. Uh, so Acts chapter 25 and 26, we are 34 sermons uh, into Acts. And let me tell you, the end is near. The end is near. We have been preaching this, I believe, since the first of the year. This may be the longest series that I have done to date over the nine years that I've been here. And if you've been with us over the past several weeks, this may feel like the longest section of Acts. Because since Acts chapter 21, it's been a little bit like deja vu all over again. Paul is constantly being brought uh, before uh, councils, uh, whether it's uh, Jews or Romans or whatever it might be. Uh, Paul is constantly being brought about to give account for his life. He is now in custody and trial after trial, plots to kill him. Paul is consistently in defense of his innocent and he is constant in his defense of the gospel. And much like the gospel of Luke that Luke wrote, now he's writing uh, Acts of the Apostles, Luke is slowing down here at the end. And so let's make a few observations of why that might be. Because you notice that in in Luke's gospel, as he gets to that last week of Jesus' life, it almost like he kind of hits the brakes and, and really starts to focus on the details of that final week in a similar way. As Paul is, excuse me, as Luke is getting to the end of, of Paul's um, missionary journeys, and as he makes his way eventually to Rome, where we'll get next week with Paul, as he begins to do that, and he goes into custody and goes back to Jerusalem and starts to go through all these trials, he's now in Caesarea at this point, but he, he kind of hits the brakes, and, and, and part of it makes me feel like he's like a high school student that like on Friday they have a 10-page paper due, and on Thursday night they have five pages done, and so they just start kind of stretching it out a little bit. Have you done that before, high school students? Like you have to have the thousand-word essay, and you only have 500 words to it, and so you start taking your contractions out, and you start to kind of lengthen it out just a little bit so that you can turn that paper in on time. It feels a little bit like that as Luke slows down, but I'm pretty sure as Luke is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as the Spirit is carrying him along, that's not what he's after. I think some of it is Luke is a, a very meticulous and a, and a very accurate theologian, I mean uh, historian. You can trust what Luke is writing that this is historically accurate. In fact, I, I ran across this probably 10 or 12 years ago. I didn't know this, but in reading a commentary, I, I ran across it. And from Acts chapter 14, uh, there's a point in, in Acts, uh, just follow along with me here just for a moment, um, that Luke says that Lystra and Derby are in the same province, like Lyconia. And historians began to say, look, look, Luke, you were wrong. Derby and Lystra were never in that same province. And as archaeologists began to turn dirt over, they discovered on some tablet that they uncovered that between the years 37 and 72 AD, unbeknownst to historians at the time, that in fact some dividing lines of those provinces had been moved just for a moment, just for those 30 years or so, and indeed Lystra and Derby were in the same province. Luke is an accurate historian, and archaeologists have, have been uncovering that even as they make discoveries in recent times. 
So some of this is Luke is an, is an accurate historian. He's telling us exactly what happened. He knows the details, and he records those details under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And that's point number two. Not only is Luke an accurate historian, Luke is being carried along by the Holy Spirit. This, this historical detail that the Spirit has him write very accurately is written for a purpose. He has a purpose for this, and, and, and much like at the end of Luke's gospel, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's slowing him down so we see something here, that we behold something, that we don't miss something, perhaps a couple of things. Perhaps it's to see the Spirit-filled resolve of Paul to stay the course. And Paul is living his life at this point, as Francis Schaeffer would say, is living his life before a watching world. He's living his life before the kings and the powers that be at the time. For some two years, the Jews have not forgotten that Paul is in prison and they want him dead. They occupy, Paul lives in their head rent free. And they have not forgotten about Paul and they still want him dead. But Paul is resolved that he is innocent of their charges And that he is resolved to continually to preach the gospel and live as Christ even in a hostile environment before a watching world. Do you find that hard to do? To live in a way that is honoring to Christ before a watching world. I think that's maybe one reason that the Spirit had Paul's, I mean, uh, Luke slow down here. Watch the Apostle Paul live under the power of the Holy Spirit resolved to stay the course. And so perhaps this is to spur us on, as we see the resolve of Paul, to spur us on to also live under the influence of the Holy Spirit so that we will have the same resolve. Have you ever had those kind of weeks that seem like they last a month? Do you ever have days that seem like they last for weeks? Do you you ever feel like The slow motion button has been hit on your life and you just seem to be getting nowhere and walking through mud and year after year it all seems the same. Imagine the Apostle Paul in prison now for some two years in Caesarea. Felix had left him there and there he was. Not much has changed. He's still saying the same thing, still giving the same event, uh, still giving um, the same defense of the gospel. And he has not changed. His situation has not changed. He's still in Caesarea. Maybe he's wondered, can I keep walking? And even where is all of this heading? Have you felt that before? Perhaps that's why the Spirit had Luke slow down in this section. So I think the main point that we're going to see this morning, we're going to use, we prayed through Ephesians chapter 5, and here's why we prayed through Ephesians chapter 5 this morning. It's going to use that to kind of outline Ephesians, I mean, Acts chapter 25 and 26. For the main point this morning, that walking as children of the light, who we are if we are in Christ, walking as children of the light, as Paul is here, walking as children of light when the days and years are long, and nothing seems to be changing. It's the same old story, same old song and dance. It's deja vu all over again. And everything seems the same. And the world grows increasingly hostile around me to the gospel that I believe and preach. How do we walk as children of the light? Here's how Paul would write from, not this prison, but a prison. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 16 and 18. Here's what we're going to use as our outline through this chapter. He says, pay careful attention, then how you walk. 
not as wise, not as unwise people, excuse me, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most use of your time because the days are evil. So don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here's the first thing that I want you to see this morning is as we walk as children of the light in a world that seems to grow increasingly hostile and even in our own life, nothing seems to change. You seem like you're still in the same place. The first thing that I want you to see this morning is to walk carefully. That's part number one. Point number one, walk carefully. Pay attention. If anything I have learned from being a parent is to walk carefully. Last night I was walking to go sit on the sofa to finish putting some of my thoughts together for this sermon and I stepped on, not a Lego, but a sword and I nearly hit the ground. Can you testify to that this morning? Amen. Pay attention. Watch where you're walking and walk with wisdom. Walk is not unwise, but wise. Here's what the Bible tells us about wisdom. This is Proverbs chapter 1, verse 27. It says, for those who walk in wisdom, here's the promise, will dwell securely, will be at ease and not dread disaster. We'll, walk, we'll be secure, we'll be at ease, and we will not dread disaster. So watch where you're going, watch where you're walking, and walk wisely. What does this look like to walk with wisdom? To ask the Lord to, to show you the way to seek his wisdom. The Bible says, if anyone you lacks wisdom, ask it and he'll give it to you. It's, it's grace. So he'll give you wisdom. Just ask him. He'll do it. Walk above reproach. This is how Paul has been living. He's, he was living in a way that accusations would not stick. So to walk in the moment, even when you don't know when the future holds, walk in the moment in a way that honors God so that when you encounter hostile environments and hostile situations, there is nothing that will ever stick to you. No accusations will stick because you were carefully walking all along. That's what Paul has been doing all along. He walked consistently. He's been some two years in prison. He's still giving the same defense. Here's what Paul is doing. He's walking wisely. He understands his personal situation. He understands what God has called him to do. God has called him to Rome to go preach. God has promised he would get him to Rome. And so he patiently waits, understanding his personal situation. Though his circumstances aren't changing, he's trusting the Lord that God would be faithful. But also walking wisely, he also understands his cultural situation. That's why he appeals to Caesar. He's wise in this moment, and he knows the laws of the land. And he knows the laws of the land will get him to Rome if he appeals to Caesar because there is nothing that will stick. He has done nothing to to deserve this. And and if he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen, he must go to Caesar. So Paul looks around. He understands his current situation. He understands God's doing something in his life. So he's going to walk above reproach. He's going to walk consistently. He's even going to use the, the, the political system of the day to get him where God would have him to be. And so Paul is paying attention. He's walking carefully. He's walking wisely. As Ephesians chapter 5, he's paying careful attention to how he walks. He's paying careful attention to the way he walks. Why? Point number two, because the days are evil. 
The days are evil. This is what we see unfold in chapter 25 and 26. As Paul pays attention, the watching world, the watching world, it's dark. The world we're dealing with, the the way the world deals with Christians is increasingly evil. The days are evil, so be careful as you walk. Let's talk about 25 and 26. You remember Felix from last week. I won't read all of this to you, but let's summarize what's going on here. What does it look like with the days being evil? We read of Felix at the end of chapter 24. He's trying to do the Jews a favor, and so he leaves Paul in prison. Much like Pilate with Jesus, he wants to wash his hands of it. He doesn't want to be accused of having uh, someone killed that is um, not guilty according to Roman law. But he doesn't want to disappoint the Jews who want him dead, who are powerful at the time. So he kind of washes his hand. Felix is out of office, and, but he has left Paul in prison. He didn't know what to do with Paul, much like the evil days. They don't know what to do with Christians. And sometimes the evil days look like leaders not doing the right thing. Not knowing what to do with Christians, but also us trusting that God accomplishes his purpose even through bad leaders. That we don't need the leaders that we like in office for God to accomplish his purpose, as you understand this, right? It's Felix. He leaves him in. And then next in line is Porcius Festus. There's a name. If you want a strong name for your kid, Porcius Festus. He went by Festus. He picked, the, I guess, the lesser of the two evils, and he goes by Festus instead of Porcius. So Porcius, Festus, is, is now in charge, and, and as he comes to Caesarea, he makes the political rounds, as politicians do. He goes to Jerusalem. Uh, the Jews, he's you know, making his political ties here. So what the watching world does the, in the days of evil, we're making all of these political connections. And the Jews ask him, bring Paul to Jerusalem for us. They really want to ambush Paul again. They planned that before. It didn't work out. The powers that be got Paul out of here. They want to somehow get Paul out of prison on the road so they can ambush him and just kill him, not even go to trial. Just be done with it because this whole trial thing is not working out. That's what they want. Festus is declines. He goes back to Caesarea. He invites the Jews to come with him. Paul offers Paul the trial in Jerusalem. We see in chapter 25, but he declines. And at the end of chapter, at the end of chapter 25, chapter 25, verse 12, then Festivus, when he conferred with his council, answered, then Paul, to Caesar you appealed, to Caesar you will go. So still, Nothing has changed. He's still on his way to Caesar. Two years later, still the same decision. These are politicians, Felix and Festus, seeking to stay in favor with the masses. And they want to please the powerful Jews, but they also don't want to look dumb and send to Caesar a man that has no charges against him. Do you see that in our world today? Don't tell me the Bible's not real. Are there still politicians making decisions based on political ties that are going to cost Christians? It's going to be increasingly difficult for us to live as Christians before a watching world and not lose jobs. I know young people, you're at the cost of losing friendships because of some things we believe because of our resurrected Christ. 
That's what's going on. Felix and Festivus, they, they still don't know what to do with it. So Agrippa is called in in verse 13. Look at chapter 25, verse 13. So the days are still evil. And when some days had passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festivus. And they stayed there so many days, and Festivus laid Paul's case before the king. And this is a man left prisoner by Felix. You know that because we just talked about it. And when I was at Jerusalem, chief priests and the elders and the Jews laid out their case, asking for a sentence of condemnation against him. I answered him that them that this was not the custom of the Romans to give up anyone before the accused met the accusers face to face and had an opportunity to make his defense concerning his charge laid against him. And so they came together. They made no delay. He said, when the accusers stood up, it goes on to say in verse 19 that the points of their dispute were merely over religion about a certain man named Jesus who was dead, but who is now resurrected. So they bring Herod Agrippa in, who was in the lineage of Herod. You know, Herod the Great killed the babies in Bethlehem upon Jesus's birth. You know, Acts chapter 12, one of his kids was killed and eaten by worms. And now we have from this long line of unbelievers, Agrippa comes in. We read in verse 13 with his sister Bernice. Um, That was not a good relationship. Agrippa and Bernice. Just to keep it PG-13, they were living in a very ungodly way, these two. He still doesn't know what to do with this man. Festivus says he's done nothing wrong except for religious disputes. And the main reason that something is wrong is because he preaches a resurrected Christ. That's the main problem of what's going on. He preaches a resurrection Christ, the resurrection changes everything. And if you deny it, you have historical evidence to deny. Christ had appeared resurrected to them and to many around them, Corinthians tells us. And if you believe that he is Lord, then he deserves the highest allegiance. And that's what they're seeing in Paul. And they don't know what to do with him. So Agrippa says, I'll hear him myself. Bring his case before me. And we'll see, verse 25, chapter 25, verse 23. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festivus, Paul was brought in. Understand this. So they don't know what to do with him. Herod Agrippa brings them before him. Understand, he's coming in with great pomp and circumstance, bringing Paul in chains, a prisoner before him. Here's the who's who of the time. Military leaders, political leaders, they're all here. Do you think this is a bit of intimidation? I would think so. We know several things about Paul. There's, there's some historical writings that's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we're not sure if these historical descriptions are accurate. Some say Paul was a small man, bald-headed, bandy-legged, stocky, unibrow, long-nosed, but full of grace. Was this true or not? I don't know. I know thing. Paul probably looked a little bit worn out. He had been on some incredible missionary journeys. He had been beaten even to the point that at one point they thought he was dead. And he probably didn't go to Walgreens and get some like scar-reducing cream to make his appearance look better. And there was probably bones that were not put back together and probably didn't quite heal properly. Paul was worked over. 
and he was in chains, a prisoner for two years, and now he stands before Agrippa with great pomp and circumstance. And I guarantee they looked all right. Before a watching world, the days are evil. Believers are ignored, as we see. They're pushed around. They're not taken seriously. They're intimidated, all because we believe in the resurrected Christ. So what do we do? We walk wisely. Why? Because the days are evil. Here's point number three this morning. So what do we do as we walk wisely, as the days are evil, as maybe you're ignored, maybe you're going through difficult um, times, people don't believe you, people are intimidating you because you believe in the resurrected Christ. The days are evil. So point number three from Ephesians chapter five, redeem the time. So make the best use of your Time. When you're walking through mud and it seems like you're going nowhere, when you're in prison for two plus years and you don't know if anything's going to change or they're ever going to actually send you to Rome, you cling to the promises of God and you make most of your time. Redeem the time is what's going on here. To buy back the time. That time, yes, time is a thief. We know that. If your parents, you, you know that. That time seems to be a thief. But more of what this is saying is that, that the evil days are trying to steal the time from you, to steal your days from you, to overwhelm you with what you're going through and trying to steal the joy, steal the productivity of your day, steal the time right out from under you. There's nothing more than the evil one would like you to do is to waste your days. So Paul is saying, look, take back the time. Make the best use of your time by being intoxicated with the Holy Spirit so that everything that you do is marked by the indwelt Spirit in your life. And so that's what Paul does. He walks wisely as he navigates the situation. The days are evil, but he keeps pressing on. And as he press on, he doesn't just fold his hands and say, oh, well, I'm at their mercy. It's as if he's on the offensive saying, I'm going to redeem these two years. I'm going to redeem this time before Agrippa, and I'm going to make the best use of my time under the power of the Holy Spirit, and let's see what God does with it. Here's what he does. First... He humbly asks for a hearing. So, so how do you live and walk wisely before a watching world in which the days are evil? Maybe these are some points of application we can pull out here. Number one, we see in Acts chapter 26, verses 2 and 3, that Paul humbly asks for a hearing. In this moment of intimidation, listen to what Paul says, I myself am fortunate that I am before you today, King Agrippa. I'm going to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jew. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. Paul humbly asked for a hearing. If anyone could be rude at this point, perhaps it's Paul. You have unjustly had me in prison for two years now, doggone it. Do something about this, Agrippa. But he remained respectful and humble, tender-hearted, redeemed the time. We must care about people if we want to reach people with the gospel. We must humbly ask for a hearing. That's what Paul does here. Redeem the time. 
care about the people, humbly ask for a hearing. Redeem the time. We see that Paul connects with his hearers. You see this in Acts, if you're outlining, Acts chapter 26, verses 4 to 8. He, he identifies with his hearers. He's a, before King Agrippa, and Agrippa, he knows the, the Jewish law. He knows the Jewish customs. And Paul says in verse 4, My manner of life from, from youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, it's all known by the Jews. They have known for a long time that if they are willing to testify that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by the Jews, O king. Then he connects the dots with him. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead. Paul connects with his hearers. He he says again that I have lived my life according to the customs of the law. You know that, Herod. I know that. All the Jews know it. Just ask them. And, And you know, Agrippa, just as these Jews are longing for the hope of the Messiah to come, and that Messiah has come, hope has come, and I'm being accused because I'm declaring the resurrected Christ is that hope says, you know this. Why is this, in verse 8, why is this incredible to you? Why is this unbelievable to you? If you know the God of Genesis, that he creates all things just by speaking it into existence, if you know this, why is it so hard to believe that God raised him from the dead? Why is it so hard to believe in the resurrection? If creation, why not the tomb? You you know he's saying what the Old Testament scriptures are saying is that this is the hope that we have been waiting for. So he meets them where they are and says, here's what you know. And let me tell you what you know and what you've been waiting for is all found in Christ. So redeem the time. Know your audience. Know what they believe and connect with them. Connect their hopes with the fulfillment of that hope in Christ. So he humbly asks for a hearing. He connects with his hearers. And then we see something that's perhaps hardest of all, that Paul is honest about his past. He's honest about his past. Look at verse 9. He's redeeming the time, redeeming this moment. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in imposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. So he was once against this hope. I did so in Jerusalem and I not only locked up many of the saints, but in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest. And, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. Paul is saying, look, I'm going to redeem the time, and I'm not going to gloss over my past. Like, I was pretty messed up. Do you remember life before Christ? Before he met you and changed you, pursued you? Tell people what your life was like before Christ. He is honest about his past. Redeem the time. Be honest about your past with people. Number four, redeem the time. He testifies about what Jesus has done. Not, don't just stop at your past. Stop 
I mean, keep going to what Christ has done. Paul says that he was once kicking against the goads. You see it there. He said, Jesus met him on the road. Christ met me. Tell them what Christ has done. He met you on the road. And he said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. He is saying, Agrippa, all of those hearings, I, just like you, I was kicking against the goads. You know what a goad is, right? It's a very sharp object that was meant to keep stubborn cattle going in the right direction. And Paul is saying all along, the Lord was goading me along. And I was kicking against those goads. And you can kind of get the picture that my feet and my legs were bloody because I was resisting. I was at least trying to resist God and submitting my life to him. And you are doing that right now, he is saying. But let me tell you, I was there and he met me and he changed me. And when he met me, I knew he was Lord. He said, who are you, Lord? I don't even know who you are, but I know that you're Lord. Because you have changed my life even in this moment. So he does, and he says, I'm Jesus, you're persecuting me. It's a little tidbit, right? If you're being persecuted, it's really Christ they're persecuting. If you persecute a believer, you're really persecuting Christ. So Paul is saying, my life was a mess. I stood, stood condemned. I was kicking against the goads until Jesus met me on the road. Redeem the time. Be honest about your past. Oh, tell them about Jesus. Tell them how you met Jesus, or better yet, how Jesus met you. Or perhaps tell them, hey, look, stop kicking against the goad. Submit to Christ. I promise you it's worth it. When Jesus is king, it changes everything. You dwell securely. You are at ease, and you do not fear disaster. Redeem the time. Tell people how you met Jesus, or tell them, stop kicking against the goads and submit to him. The final thing, redeem the time, be faithful to your calling. You see what Paul says there? That God called me just as he opened my eyes to open their eyes, verse 18, the eyes of the Gentiles, so they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. You are an ambassador for Christ, and that is for all of us who are Christians this morning, that we make an appeal to people, stop kicking against the goads, submit to Christ, leave darkness, and come into light. There is hope for all who believe. Paul was faithful to his calling. That's how he redeemed the time. Paul redeemed the time by asking for, humbly asking for a hearing, by being uh, connecting with his audience, by being honest about his past, by glorifying Christ and what he had done for him, to, to call people to repentance and to be faithful to his calling, to open the eyes of the blind by the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul is walking, as it were, Drunk on the Holy Spirit, intoxicated by the Holy Spirit, always caring about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, truth be told, we'll, we'll start to stop here. It calls for a response, doesn't it? Because you'll see that the days are evil and the world is drunk on all sorts of things on power, on politics, on wealth, on sexuality. There's all of these things that we say that if we have these things, then we have an identity. 
And you saw this throughout with Felix, with Porcius Festus, with Agrippa, and all of these folks that Paul comes in contact with. That they are being swayed by other things. Festivus pipes in in verse 24, and he says, Paul, you are crazy. The gospel is foolishness to those who don't believe. Paul says, no, this is true and rational. Festus, you are drunk on your own power right now. It would be foolish not to follow Christ. Indeed, that is what's true and irrational. But for Festus, his response is, this is all crazy. Maybe that's where you are this morning. For Agrippa, he pipes in, what about you, Agrippa? You know know the Jewish teaching? I'm telling you that Christ is your only one. What about you? And Agrippa says, not so quick. Would you seek essentially to convert me in this short period of time? Agrippa is not saying, oh, Paul, you almost got me. Paul, Agrippa is saying, you've got to be kidding me. I hear what you're saying, Paul, but I am not about to submit to Christ and the resurrected Christ today. Would you persuade me to be a Christian right now? I understand what the Bible says, but understanding what the Bible says is not close enough. And so, Agrippa, maybe that's where your heart is this morning. Not so quick. I've heard you say this thing about the gospel and trusting in Christ, but I'm not going to do it. I know what it says, but it's crazy. I'm not going to do it. And so they confer. They decide again. Nothing's changed. Paul's going to still walking through the same old story, deja vu all over again. You're not guilty, Paul. So to Caesar, you will go. God uses the evil days and these evil powers to get Paul to exactly where he had called them to go, to preach the gospel in Rome. Paul responds to the unbelief. At the end of Acts chapter 26, Paul says this, I wish that you were like me, minus the chains. They say to Paul, this man could have been set free if he would not have appealed to Caesar at the end of chapter 26. But Paul says to them in verse 29, I wish you were free like me, except for the chains. Paul counted his life as nothing. His freedom was not undone by the chains that were around his hands and feet. So where are you this morning? Well, my appeal to be just like Paul, I, I wish you were free if you're not free in Christ. I wish you were free. Are you flirting with the gospel? You still think the gospel is foolish or and maybe this is one thing that I want to really challenge you with. Are, are you still like Festus and Felix and Agrippa, like Paul once was? Are you kicking against the goads? Maybe you have parents in your life that are pointing you to the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and the Lord hasn't left you yet. He's still there, and you're kicking against the goads. Let me say, you're only hurting yourself. But let me tell you about our Christ. That if your feet are bloody from kicking against the goads, I know of a Christ 
who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. I know a Christ who on the night before he was betrayed at the Last Supper knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. I know a Christ who if your feet are bloody from kicking against the goads and seeking to resist him, I know a Christ that will wash them clean and welcome you into his arms. That's what Paul's desire was. He made the best use of his time under the power of the Holy Spirit and called these men, as I call you this morning, to stop kicking against the goads and come to Christ who will wash you clean. Let's pray.